This is Gestoras. Today's episode is in English. El episodio de hoy de Gestoras es en inglés. Pueden leer una transcripción en español en nuestro sitio web o pueden ver el episodio en YouTube con subtítulos en español. Gestoras Podcast brings you conversations with cultural managers from the North and the South. We celebrate the work of Latina cultural managers, sharing their stories of success, challenges, and lessons learned. The episodes alternate between Spanish and English each week. Laura Oeritamekas is the Deputy Director of Museum Services at the Institute of Museum and Library Services. Previously, she was Executive Director of the Association of Children's Museums, the world's largest professional society, promoting and advocating on behalf of children's museums. In 2016, she was recognized as a champion of change for summer opportunity by the White House. In 2018, she was named as an Ascent Fellow of the Aspen Institute. Huerta Migas earned a BA in Spanish from Texas A&M University, an MS in Organization Development and Leadership from St. Joseph's University. Hola, Laura. We're so happy to have you here with us on Gestoras. It's such a thrill to have you as our guest. That's great to be here. Uh, well, I'm very, very excited to talk to you because I think your background and your philosophy speak very much to what we're trying to do here about being as inclusive and representational as possible and celebrating uh, Latina and Latina achievements. So why don't you tell the audience a little bit about yourself? What made you... Uh, Laura Huerta Muse, and what made you be where you are today? Oh, thank you for that question. Well, I think, you know, we have to really start with um, uh, with our ancestors, you know, and um, all of our roots uh, and where we're from. And for me, um, that really is about being a Chicana um, and having that as maybe my first sense of self. Um, because I came from a very proud uh, Chicano Chicane family, and that was a very strong identity for us, um, starting in the desert southwest, both in Chihuahua and then later into Arizona and California um, uh, with my grandparents and my parents. And, um, you know, even as... Uh, a very, very young child, an awareness of the importance of our culture, and that, that includes our values, but also the cultural products of our community was something that was very present for me. Our music, our art, our media was something that I was surrounded by. And because we were in very... Um, I would say Chicano territory, you know, I grew up in Aslan. We are not um, immigrants on this land that um, I was brought up with a great awareness from the beginning that um, our own cultural products were something that were very important to be involved with and engaged in. Um, and I had that modeled for me from my parents even at a very young age, you know, um, I think people might take for granted um, having Sabado Gigante on on Saturday nights, 
But, you know, in the late 70s and the early 80s in this country, um, it it was a, um, a cultural act uh, of protest um, and really intention for my parents to make sure that my generation had um, exposure to that and cherished it. So your parents, so your parents were very intentional about what they very. were doing there. And did they expose you to to other kinds of art or thinking or? Absolutely, yes, absolutely. So, um, and I would say that it even goes back to my grandparents who um, were farm workers. Um, my mother's um, parents were actually born in California, but were migrant farm workers. And my father's parents um, spent most of their lives growing up in Chihuahua, Nuevo Casas Grandes, Chihuahua, Mexico, and followed what I think people think of as the migrant farm worker experience. They came back and forth, and um, but settled here. But even in that generation, um, my grandmothers primarily wanted to make sure that their children had a cultured education. So all of them required that their children learn an instrument. Wow. You know, all of them made sure that their children graduated from high school. Um, and those were so such important priorities um, that, you know, I took for granted as a young person right? That was a part of our family narrative. We're supposed to be readers. We're supposed to be artists. You know, we're supposed to be part of the world. Um, but through our lens as Mexican-Americans, uh, and we have a right to that. So it, it even starts earlier than that, you know, and I think, um, you know, my, um, my abuelitas don't get the uh, credit that they're due for really being such visionary, um, visionary uh, women and mothers and grandmothers for us, and really setting you up for for a particular uh, for particular chances in life and yeah. and and, and worldviews. So, so in a sense, they were your first mentors. Oh, absolutely. And and were they? Uh, how did you end up in museums? Were they museum oriented, or was that something that you discovered on your own as you were? Yeah, you know that was something that I really did discover on my own. Um, you know, those were not organizations or institutions that even existed in a very present way where my family uh, has its roots in those communities. There were just really not museums. Um, but there were cultural centers, right? And there were cultural activities. And so I primarily grew up in San Antonio and that is a city that number one is a very Mexican American city. And so I think that gave me a platform for just feeling like belonging. Um, my identity as a Chicana was not extraordinary in any way. And in fact, everybody looked like me, <laughs> you know, we were, it was, uh, so that I think creates a different kind of baseline. And then it's a city that really is grounded in its history as being part of Mexico before Mexico, the Republic of Texas, and then, you know, the right. United States. So there were so many entry points, all of those cultural institutions were representing stories that um, 
I could feel uh, I could belong in, and then I could belong in those spaces. And so it also happens to be a city that has a very rich cultural landscape that was very accessible. So I'd say that my first museuming belonging experience really was as a teenager. And there are two very important sites in San Antonio for me that are very nostalgic. Um, and that is the McNay Art Museum and the San Antonio Botanical Gardens. Mm. And those two institutions are free. They're free and they're open. And they were playgrounds for my friends and I as creative teenagers. <laughs> um, they were these uh, refuges that we could access with no money. Um, we did have cars because it's Texas and you have to have a car, <laughs> access to a car when you're 15. But we could roam the city and find these safe, but also beautiful places to um, grow up together and that we were allowed to be in. You know, um, there was a version of Teenage Laura that got to go to the McNay for free when there was a Saturday and I wanted to have an adventure and I would take myself to the McNay and plant myself in one of the galleries and sit on the floor and write terrible poetry. <laughs> um, How old were you when you were doing your terrible poetry? Oh, well, I mean, it started very early, maybe 13, but I think in that phase, I was a 16 year old, 17 year old. You know, I think the, the, the way that I was socialized into museums was that there are places you can go to find yourself you know, and those docents let me in. They let me in and they let me sit on the floor with my little journal and write my poetry and my friends to sit on the ground because these are beautiful spaces also where we got to sit and have access to um, beautiful places that in that were in our community, but that felt very nurturing and healing to us. And so I, that was those, that's where I always feel like is my entry point to museums. Um, it, but it didn't occur to me that that would be my professional life. When did it happen to you? Cause you were in these very welcoming, accepting yes. places, right? Uh, when did that happen that you made the, that it clicked for you that this could be your life? Much later, much later, after um, after my undergraduate work, and I started some graduate work that was um, not my time or place to be in, and I actually um, dropped out of a PhD program and came back home to San Antonio to figure out what I was going to do with my life. And I have always been. Um, very uh, politically active um, and as an undergraduate advocating for um, 
Hispanic Latina student issues at Texas A&M University and in other environments and educational equity was something that was very important to me. And so um, the place to do that is in Washington, DC. So I think like young people, you have an idea and you go and get a job. And so I came to Washington, DC actually to work for the National Association for Bilingual Education. And um, there's a whole world learning that world of advocacy and capacity building was very interesting to me. And as I looked to um, my next job, there there's an association for everything here in DC. Yes. <laughs> and I saw an opportunity at the Association of Children's Museums. And I thought, you know, I have some background in anthropology. So and some of that work around museology, I definitely got some exposure around educational advocacy and professional development. And so this seemed like an incredible opportunity. And when I came into that world, and that was really my entry professionally into the museum world, um, I was really struck by how museums are such an opportunity space for the things that motivated me for centering culture and the importance of culture in our success, um, in being focused on learning, but also learning with no parameters. You know, there are these open spaces for people-centered learning. And, you know, and I pull back on those very first experiences of what access to museums meant for me as a young person. I grew up in a museum rich space that I was allowed into and welcomed into. So um, that's really driven all of my work, um, finally becoming a museum person. But for me, you know, it's really been about aligning with my beliefs in culture and the power of education. And you've talked about before about how you view museums as systems for change. Um, and how you view the power of museums to disrupt uh, systems productively. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. So this is the thing about, um, you know, that idea of learning without parameters. So museums, I think about as um, they really are temples to ourselves. You know, they, they are um, the way that we as humans celebrate what we are able to do as humans. And they are these places that, so they're places of celebration, they're places of gathering, they're places of learning. Um, and they're also places of mutual investment. So museums, the best museums, the healthiest museums are the ones that are um, the connectors of so many silos in our communities and our systems. So a museum is a place through the development of an exhibit and its programming, right? That can engage the public school system, it can engage academia, and it can engage policymakers. So let's say your city council or your economic development um, uh, initiative 
around the development of an exhibit and a program. So there are very, very few other actors in communities that can set a table that so many different systems are willing to come to. And because there are no rules to a museum experience, you know, you nobody fails a museum visit, even though sometimes they can feel like they do. But you know, in um, there's no right or wrong way to be there. So museums can experiment with pedagogies that a school teacher or a system may not be able to for a variety of reasons, but they sure can work and watch from a museum and that museum be the testing ground where pedagogies and content are tested and then can be brought in because it's safe, right? Where these development grounds, they are a place where when there is social unrest, and we've seen this so much, unfortunately, we've had the opportunity to see so much of this really in the past 10 years when we've had so much um, racial conflict and economic conflict, civic conflict, that museums, even just as a place, just as a venue for community leaders to hold a community conversation becomes a place where you can engage communities and people are willing to come who wouldn't come to city hall or whatever the government center is. But if you invite them to come to your museum, it feels like a different conversation. And so, you know, I think there's this fascinating thing about museums being able to be direct actors, but also sometimes just be a sacred place. They can be a sacred place as a place in their museums that enable others to engage in ways that maybe they wouldn't be able to in their own territories. Yeah, and, and that's a different vision of the sacred place as museums as temples or something unattainable. They can still be, they can, you can use that word as you're doing it, right? With sacred places, very, this very special place which, as you said, has a unique ability to connect people from all walks of life, from all levels of government, from all sectors of society, because all the others have a dedicated sector, a dedicated part of that. The museum can connect to everybody. That's right. You know, and I think we, in my time in the museum world, there's been a struggle on, you know, should we, the institution, be the direct actor? Or is it enough to be the venue, just the holding, the meeting place? And I think you know, I think that also is about a cult. Some cultures live in a binary, right? And like, we don't live in a binary. It's like, well, you, you can be what you need to be. It's about finding what you need to be. And I, that's, what's exciting about museums too. So to your point about disruptors is that I don't think there's a right answer. It's about helping museums figure out what the right role is for themselves in in their communities. Why do you think it's so hard? I mean, you talked about, you know, the ideal museum, the best museum as being the ones who can reach across silos, make these connections. What What is standing in the way of that? What do you think accounts for the fact that many museums are still struggling with being able to, to do that? So um, 
I think that number one, I'll admit that I get to have this perspective because I was raised in maybe the two of the more community centered disciplines in the museum field in terms of children's museums, as well as science centers, right? They are places of experience um, more than places of things. So I want to acknowledge that up front. However, however, they still work within the trappings of what it is to be a museum. And so um, I think that the challenges a lot of museums face is we don't talk about how actually complex um, institutions museums are. You know, every museum I think about is actually four different kinds of organizations under one roof, right? Ooh, tell me more. Yeah, they're, so they are a place. They are a physical place. So they're a facility and there is a whole sort of operational, uh, operational obligations or paradigm that go with that. Like you've got to run a building that has people in it and grounds and, you know, um, HVAC systems. And those are very real, right? So almost like an entertainment venue, you have that. You have um, a retail function because most of the museums in this country are private nonprofits and they have to charge admission. They sell things. So you have a retail function. And there's a certain mindset that goes with running a retail organization. There's a lot of money things that go with running a retail organ, the economics of running a retail organization. There are also many, in many cases, uh, sort of academic institutions. They are knowledge creators, knowledge curators, regardless of the discipline and some more than others, right? And then the last is that there are these, um, they've got an educational mission, which is different than the academic mission. And educational organizations have their own set of operational paradigms. And it doesn't matter how big or small your institution is, the smallest volunteer-led historical history museum, history site, is has to manage four different kinds of businesses with four different kinds of mandates, objectives, and sometimes in conflict. Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. Those are in tension with each other all the time. And so a, bit of a, trou a troubled personality that museums. You know, so that's correct. And so I say that is wildly complex, but I think the strongest museums, the ones that create those, that feeling of, um, that they're treasured, you know, that they're treasured, that they weather crises are museums that have figured out a mission that clear makes clear how all of these parts need to work together so that they're not in conflict with each other. There's always tension, but they, they can see, they build a function, they figured out what their mandates are across these so that these are in support of each other 
So they built a healthy system so that um, I think about an example um, is the Monterey Bay Aquarium. This is a very big example, but so think about the Monterey Bay Aquarium, which is a massive, a massive facility that has, um, you know, millions of people coming through it and has very, very sophisticated um, educational outreach, but they're also doing basic science and they created Ocean Watch or the Seafood Watch. But in their organization, all of these things build on each other because they've figured out a mandate, right? And they are going to, and they sell things in their, in their shop, you know, <laughs> but that you can see that there's a unity of purpose and that unity of purpose actually is about how do they make the world a better place? And I do think that the museums that have figured out their mandate around how they're making the world a better place, whether the world is the block around them or their community, or um, people interested in what they're about, that they, when you figure out your public mandate, that falls into place. And that, that's really, I think, the, the thing that's unifying and going back to your question about how they can be disruptors is that they're also role models in their communities, right? Of how to be of service. So, yeah. So it's finding a, um, finding a mandate that, that supersedes all these other smaller institutional internal mandates of the organization. Like you said, the public mandate, finding that uh, and, and, and modeling it for others. This is how you can do that. Because right. it will drive fundraising. It will drive right. grant making. It'll drive your design work. It drive, if you're a collecting institution, it will drive your accessioning missions, you know, um, that public mandate is, um, and that strong mission that the, or the, all of the organization knows their job is what the best museums do. I want to uh, turn to ask you about your work in the IMLS and what that is. But before I do that, I have one last uh, question for you about your life before IMLS, which had to do when you were at the National Children's Association, you were known for creating partnerships and innovative partnerships uh, across sectors, you know, around racial reconciliation, around children's mental health. Um, it's one of the reasons that I am your fan uh, and wanted so much to talk to you because that kind of partnership, you know, with children's museums is, is, is fairly rare in that kind of mindset. So um, could you tell me a little bit about what you those partnerships, what you did, those programs. Yeah, sure. And, and it builds just on what I was just talking about, because when I came on as the executive director of ACM in 2014, the organization and its community, the members of Children's Museum, which were world worldwide, um, that community was on the edge of the next level of maturity development as a community, as a field. And so we did this work, you know, we did this work for the association. I said, there are a million things we could be to serve children's museums. There, there is such a wide opportunity, but we need to decide on a focus that as a community, we, what, what are, what are we going to be about? Um, because there were a lot of partnerships, but none of them had any 
coherence to them. It was a project over here and then one over here. And they were all doing good work, but they didn't feel like they added up to anything. So we did this work with my board and the membership to create a new mission and vision. And the vision that we developed, so this, and that was really the vision that we developed was we envision a world where all children have the rights and resources they need to develop into healthy adults. That, that was, that's what children's museums are trying to do in the world. We're trying to model that, that every child needs what they, gets what they need to be healthy adults. And the job of the association was to champion children's museums as those agents of change. Those are very simple sentences, but they were important sentences. <laughs> and so that gave me the focus as we were looking at big issues like racial injustice and reconciliation um, to engage in conversations with mostly scholars and other organizations that were doing this work and be able to say, this is what children's museums have to offer. Um, in the, where we and this is why we care about it. So um, one of the partnerships we developed was with the Center for Community Resilience at George Washington University that does uh, work from a public health perspective on adverse childhood experiences and toxic stress, which primarily, um, not primarily, but um, disproportionately affect children and families of color because racism creates adverse childhood experiences. And so they gave us an opportunity to say, well, how can we play together in this space? And there were a couple of important ways. Children's museums are joyful places for families and families that are experiencing toxic stress are often because they're low resourced, right? They have, are living in community environments that are very stressful. So how do we create, how do we become part of the systems that create refuge? Because doctors know when they're, from a public health perspective, one of the interventions is they need refuge. People just need places to feel safe. And doctors can't change that. They can't create never other housing opportunities, but what they can do, what they can do is say to parents, to families that they're intervening with and social workers as well, if families in crisis is, here's a great partnership that we have with the Children's Museum. Did you know that you could go for free? Did you know that you could check out a pass from the library for free. So all of these things that children's museums had already been doing on their own, but hadn't connected it to the system. You know, this is, we found our place in that. Um, and so, you know, it's about understanding your mission. Now, what we, some children's museums got very involved in actually being on community coalitions, et cetera, but that wasn't everybody's mandate. But what everybody has in common is a place that they want 
to be joyful places for families and a commitment to serving all children. So, um, you know, decentering ourselves was important there and then knowing what gifts we had to bring to the table. Um, I think as part of my partnership practice. So listening with open ears and again, um, really hearing what a need is and then thinking about what we have to bring. And sometimes what we have to bring also are just connections and awareness. So for example, um, a few years ago in one of the um, peaks of the crisis at our southern border when we were having thousands of children separated from their um, adults or coming unaccompanied um, across the border. Uh, we would think, why are children's museums have any place in that system and environment? And the reality is, is that because our members serve families um, and are not part of the formal systems. They were asked to be and sometimes stood up as community meeting places and information sharers um, that could be brokers between families, extended families that were trying to get information um, and a safe meeting ground um, for both representatives from the legal systems with these families, but in a way that felt protected. Um, and we also the had sanctuary. Our, they were a sanctuary. This is like these, um, when I say sacred places, right? Um, and because they exist outside of the governmental system, they have control of their own land. And this becomes so important in some of these extreme environments. So there, there are also places where custody exchanges happen, where supervised foster visits happen. So that's when I talk about being a place. They don't have to do anything but be, right? So um, we think about that in partnership, right? As like, what are the things we already do that maybe there are other systems out there looking for or they're trying to replicate and i think this is true for museums all types of museums that we look at all kinds of public spaces that are trying to make themselves more like art museums or more like children's museums more like history you know where there's this whole creative placemaking movement and i think it's wonderful and if you peel it back they are inspired by the museum environment but i think it's an opportunity for museums to raise their hands and say well, how can we help be a better place also for this? Yeah, and it comes from a place of abundance, right? From thinking of abundance as we contain these resources, we contain this, how can we contribute to improving the quality of life for the people who, who are around us? And yeah, and I'll say maybe the last thing about that abundance is that's also a driver, that was a driver for me in partnerships and maybe looking at, looking at, Un, um, unexpected partnerships is 
was really embracing that abundance mentality that um, by opening our arms wider, we only make ourselves bigger. Because what I hear, even at my job at there and at my job at IMLS, is that when we talk about museums, nobody hates museums. Nobody. Nobody. Um, either they don't know about us, but if you talk about you know, the people that matter, like policymakers and funders, when you say you work at a museum or for museums, my universal experience is that the first thing people say is they say, oh, I love the -da 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 museum. I love, I love my favorite, like it's only love that we hear. And so somehow we miss, uh, there's a disconnect between individuals loving us and then feeling, feeling loved or like we matter. And so I think that abundance mentality is a, a strategy for us to close that gap because we are loved. Right. And I think also to, to, to follow your or an earlier thought that you were saying with these competing internal mandates, the scarcity mentality comes when we focus on those internal mandates. And it's when you think of that higher purpose that the abundance mentality comes in. It's like, oh, we have all this. Right? Well, I want to turn to your current position, your current uh, job as deputy director of the Institute of Museum and Library Services. Uh, there are listeners who may not know, since we're, we're, this podcast is going to be transmitted in English and Spanish, may not be aware of what the IMLS is. So could you talk a little bit about what sure. the IMLS is and what you do there. Yeah. So um, IMLS is the Institute of Museum and Library Services, and we are a federal agency in the United States, and we are the largest federal funder of libraries, archives, and museums. And I am the Deputy Director of the Office of Museum Services, and our team's work is to um, disseminate nearly $50 million in competitive grants to museums and um, related organizations um, across the country. And we have many grant programs for doing that, but that is the, um, the simple summary. And in addition to that grant making, we also inform the federal government and the public about the power of libraries and museums. And we do that through research that we commission around the activities of libraries, archives, and museums. And again, um, influencing policy to lift up the power of libraries, archives, and museums. So what do you do? Personally? So what I do, what I do is a little, all of those things really leading those efforts um, on behalf of museums. And so we have two offices. We have the Office of Library Services that is led by my colleague, Cindy Landrum, and they um, manage all of the funds and activities, research and policy related to libraries and archives. And then our office, um, handles all of that programming related to museums. And I think what's important primarily about our funding, all of our grants, and we have a, a number of different programs, but the thing that is in common 
um, across all of those grant programs is that IMLS funding is to support and build the capacity of museums to serve the public. So when we say museum services, it's not that we provide services to museums, it's that we are funding museum service to the public. And so um, that is a great fit for me because I've been so committed to the public mandate of museums um, for my, my whole career. So, you know, we look at um, how are we building museums capacities to be good employers through professional development and training. Um, and we fund collaborations between multiple museums and universities to develop and document new practice um, or effective practice for the museum. So it's really about strengthening um, all museums as a whole is our goal. Since the pandemic, what kinds of things have museums been asking the most support for? Or what kinds of things are they finding most challenging? Um, I think what the both they're both the same thing. <laughs> and, um, you know, the pandemic was devastating for the museum field. Um, I think the American Alliance of Museums report the end of the pandemic, the end of the pandemic, um, reported that something around 60% of museums engaged in major staff layoffs during the pandemic. And what we see in our funding is that museums are having to rebuild from the inside. And that is very specifically about staff. Um, there are some sectors and some museums, depending on how long the restrictions um, were in effect in their communities, are just now rehiring, are just now going back to being able to be open and operating at, at pre-pandemic levels, but they don't have- Three years later. Three years later, but they're, they don't have the staff anymore. So we're having to, we have a whole turn workforce turnover that we see. So that is such a challenge, but I will say an opportunity also. And I'm so excited to see leaders being creative. And Jimena, you were at the convening that we held in March of this year, and we brought um, almost a hundred museum leaders together to talk about the challenges of leadership right now in this field. Um, and workforce was a huge issue. But again, what was exciting was to hear CEOs and executive directors also see it as an opportunity to approach the way that they think about staff in totally different ways. So those four pillars that would usually be like, there is your director of this, or those were held as separate silos, starting to think horizontally about, well, maybe if I have a director of operations, they should be able to know about 
not just the facilities, but also visitor services and maybe part of my, you know, things are becoming more cross-functional and how that can create um, more opportunity and better focus. And a lot of that is also driven by um, a better understanding of the role they play in their community. And so it's very exciting. So it's depressing, but also there's a reason for excitement. You know, it's, uh, I think about it, it's like um, wildfires, right? There are some seeds that will only germinate once there's been a fire. And so I think that's the moment we're in, um, in the museum field. And there are leaders who are willing to experiment um, and they're listening also to these new, these new people that they're hiring. Let's talk about those new people. Let's talk about the germinating seeds. Cause one thing that we ask all of our guests is to give advice to someone who is either just coming in the field or is young. Those two things are not necessarily the same. They may be coming into the field and not be as young, but what advice would you give to someone who's just now coming into the field of museums about what they should do or think or? Yeah, so I would really encourage people coming into the field to think about the fact that everybody is a startup culture now. I think museums have had this reputation of being stable, not moving institutions, which was never true. You know, you've always had to be very entrepreneurial to advance in the field, but now it's not a secret. Now everybody's a startup. And so I think as a new employee coming into the field, you can embrace that as opportunity. And also it requires a level of courage. It's, it's going to, it requires a level of courage that um, you are going to be in environments where things will fail. Uh, you will be in environments where um, you will need to move and be flexible. Um, and that can be scary or it can be exciting and they have space to have big ideas again because things got so broken <laughs> because things got so broken there is flexibility open to them that maybe would not have been available five years ago and that is so needed and excited. And maybe the last thing about that is that none of your leaders, very few of your leaders signed on to be the CEOs of a startup. And so they're also learning, they're having to relearn how to do their jobs too. And so that's where being in partnership, I think is also so important. And, um, you know, are things that some of us bring to the table because of who we are and what our life experiences are and what cultures we come with. And it's a thing that's so needed right now. 
So Laura, you brought back the theme of, of co collaboration. And when, as you know, in every episode of Gestoras, we ask each guest to pose a question uh, that we'll then pose to another one of the guests. And your question comes from Jacqueline Flores, uh, who is the producer of Latinx Theater Commons at HowlRound. And her question was exactly about that. It's like, how does a collaborative approach manifest in your work? So um, actually, it's it's just very intrinsic, even in the work we're doing here at IMLS. So a couple of doors down from me right now, we are hosting a panel of peer reviewers for, for our award making. And a lot of people think that maybe I decide the awards or our staff. And the reality is, is that we rely on hundreds, hundreds of people to help us uh, know what is worth funding, what does the field need right now? And so our entire model relies on collaboration. Our entire model relies on it. Um, and uh, it's how we are best of service. And so even in that model, we could have a reviewer um, reviewers just fill out forms and it could be a math process, but as a team here, we have embraced the fact that we need dialogue and discussion and on every single one of those <laughs> proposals. Um, and that keeps us in service, but also we give them the space uh, to tell us how to do our jobs better. And I think that is the kind of collaboration in museums. We talk about it in terms of visitor surveys and feedback and market research, but I think the best collaborative models um, for my work and for our work is also about feedback. How do we create feedback, even when it's inconvenient, even when it takes more time, um, but it makes us better in the long run. I think I'll, I think if you ask, I ask my, if you ask my teammates who watch me in the hallways, uh, they would have one answer maybe than what I'll, I'll say. Um, you know, I think, so I allow myself permission to feel things. I allow myself permission to feel things, number one. And I was uh, 
I had that modeled for me very early on by many of my early bosses who were all women and in very uh, patriarchal environments. And they really gave me permission. I've been so blessed really to have women who said, no, you don't have to be ashamed of your feelings and you don't have to take it either. So, um, so I give myself a lot of permission and you have its practice, right? It's practice and negative experiences. You just need practice. Um, and in understanding also that it's almost never about you. It's almost never about, it might be at you and on you, but it's not about you. And so I think I give myself the permission to have my feelings, to give myself space if I need to disengage, to allow others, um, now that I'm in leadership, when I see somebody who is struggling to be proactive in giving them space, if they need space to process. Um, and I think that most important part is that it's not about me. It's all, you know, and sometimes it is about me, but I'll figure <laughs> out if it is, but almost never is it about me. And, um, you know, I really think about um, one of the things that helps me in crisis negotiations always and being in, in professional space actually are the four agreements. And so, um, which is looking at all of this and maybe the most important one around managing myself that I hold so much is being impeccable with your word. That has been maybe the most powerful tool for me as a, as a professional embodying who, everything I am, how I look, who I am in these spaces is that my believing that my words are precious and nobody gets my words unless I want them to. So I give myself my space to have my feelings but I don't give everybody permission to have access to that unless I choose to. And I know that it's in my best interest. And so I think that has been that, that advice. I will um, give that out. There are so many readings, but those four agreements have been pillars of my peace. Um, because I think in those, um, those, those four lessons help you keep your peace and that's what you need to make it through. You know, if you are a woman in very patriarchal systems, if you are a person of color, if you have any other kind of marginal identity, I, I keep saying the word sacred today, cause I think that's how I'm feeling that, um, that if you think of yourself as sacred also you can and and you guard your own peace that can really take you through 
you will find your way through. That is immensely powerful, Laura. That is, thank you. That is a gift. <laughs> thank you very much for that. Um, all right, now for real, the final question is: What are you? What are you going to leave as a question for one of our other uh, colegas here in Gitores? Well, you know what I'm very interested in, again, Gestora, as we're talking about Latina, Latine um, leaders. And so I think there are so many identities in that. And I would be really interested in the different identities that another Gestora draws on to be successful. Oh, that's a great question. I'm very excited to ask it, and then we'll let you know what they said. Well, Laura Huerta, amigos, muchísimas gracias. Thank you so much for, for spending this time with us and uh, for sharing all your wisdom and uh, your experiences. It's really been a gift uh, to Gestoras. Muchísimas gracias. Oh, thank you, Jimena. Ha sido un placer. Thank you. This episode of Gestoras was recorded in Washington, D.C. It was presented by me, Jimena Varela, and produced by Anush Titanian. The music was by Eli Elmik. The song is called Hace que exista, Make it Exist. The graphic design was by Bia Silva. This episode was mixed at the Arts Management Program at American University, Washington, D.C. You may find us on YouTube at, at Gestoras and on Facebook and Instagram at Gestoras Podcast. Thank you for listening, and don't forget to subscribe. See you next time.